Hey, y'all, welcome to RUF. My name is Simon Stokes. I'm the campus minister here. If I haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet, I'd love to meet you at some point and get to know you on some level. Um, Before we start, I wanted to say that last week we did kind of a survey of RUF. Like, we passed out note cards and asked you all three questions of, what do you think we're doing well? Uh, What could we do better? And uh, has RUF had any kind of a lasting impact upon y'all? And, you know, all in all, like, people were very positive about it, um, which is encouraging. Uh, But I want to say that one of the things that came back is something we could work on was kind of being cliquish on some levels, but kind of people coming in and saying, uh, you know, I've come here and I don't feel like people talk to me that much or people kind of have their groups or whatever. And this is not me, like, trying to, like, boost our numbers. Um, We don't live by numbers but I do want to say that, like, if you're here and you think of this as your ministry home, that you should think about, like, when you come in to talk to people that you don't necessarily know and to sit with people that aren't necessarily your friends, uh, but to reach out to people. Uh, we talk a lot about that RUF is a Christ-centered community on campus that doesn't exist for itself. And this is a great way to actually embody that is to sit and look for people that are new and to reach out to people that are new and to welcome them. Um, and that's... That's not me, like, trying to shame you or rebuke you in any kind of way, but just to say, like, to think about if you're really bought into this thing, like, to live in that and to live in accord with it. So that's what I'm going to say of that. But all in all, that was a really positive survey, and I was really um, glad for some of the candor that y'all gave to that, so thank you. Um, So we're in the book of Exodus this semester, second book of the Bible, and we are right now come to the part uh, of the book of Exodus where it talks about the law. So I'm reading Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. It's the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, or that's in the earth beneath, or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You should not murder. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You should not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your law. It's good. It shows us something of your character. It guides us to know you and to know ourselves. Lord, uh, show us through your law and the way that it fences us in the work of your son Jesus. Make that more beautiful and believable tonight. 
be with us tonight in his power and his presence. And Lord, uh, show us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so this is like, I guess, mine and Katie's fifth fall here at uh, UNC, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but, and so right now we're living in a house that we bought in Durham, but when we first moved here, we actually were renting a place uh, on Daw Street near uh, Merritt's. And we lived in this kind of tiny little like shack of a house with two bedrooms, two bathrooms. And one of the bathrooms is actually brand new when we moved into it. We were the first people to live there with this bathroom. And we moved in in like June of 2013. And it was hot. And almost as soon as we started living in this house, we started to notice that you know, the bathroom really smelled. I mean, like, really smelled. Like, porta potty smelled. It was bad. It was really bad. And so we call the landlord, and he tells us to call this plumber. And so we call the plumber, and the plumber comes out, and he looks at it and he says, You just need to clean your bathroom more, which was a deep burn. <laughs> uh, so we, we clean it, and it still smelled really bad. And we call the plumber again. And we say, hey, the smell has not gone away. It's still awful up in this bathroom. And so he comes and he like knocks on some pipes and looks at it. And he's like, uh, I'll just, I tightened some stuff. And he leaves. <laughs> I know. And we paid him like 200 bucks. <laughs> and uh, he leaves. And the smell still doesn't go away. And so we call our landlord and we're like, look, this is kind of what's going on. What can you do? So he sends out the contractor that built the bathroom onto it. And the contractor actually cuts a hole in the bathroom and like scopes it and looks down in there and realizes that one of the pipes is leaking. And every time we take a shower, which was frequent, (laughs) it would leak water under the subfloor of the house and get caught in there and in like... Summer in Chapel Hill, as you're taking showers every day, every day. <laughs> we really don't take showers every day. <laughs> but, uh, just honesty. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we would, we were building up this water in this summer heat, and it was just trapped under there, and it was starting to rot underneath the floorboards and just stink. And it was horrible. And so he actually, he gutted the bathroom, this brand new bathroom, and cleaned up this old rotten wood. And we dried it all out and they had put new drywall in and put new tile in. And it was just a major ordeal. Because the thing was, you could not fix it just by cleaning it. And you could not fix it just by fixing a little pipe in there. You had to go in there and actually take the whole thing apart because it stunk. What I want to ask tonight is, How would you know if there was a problem inside of you that you just couldn't see? How would you know that? How would you smell that out? (laughs) (laughs) Or how would you know what you were supposed to be like? Like what, how would you know like what you were aiming for in life? Like there's so much freedom to do everything and do all these different kinds of things. How would you know? It's just so hard to know how to fix something if you can't get at the root of it, right? If you can't get at its heart. And so tonight what I want to talk about is the law and what the law does for us. What I want to suggest to you is the law is actually this really good thing that's very powerful when used right. 
And that it's either going to show you what you're supposed to be like, or it's going to show you what's rotten on our insides. But either way, it's this good thing that God gives us. Our problem comes when we want to throw out God's law or toss it aside, but we need to use it in the way that God intended it to be used. And so tonight, I want to talk about the two uses of the law here. What's right with doing the law and what's wrong with doing the law. What's right with doing the law, what's wrong with doing the law. That's how I want to look at this. All right, so first of all, what's right with doing the law? When people think about the law, what they tend to think about with the Ten Commandments is this is a bunch of rules that God has given us because he's grounding us, right? Like it's a big bummer. Do this, don't do that. But that's not God's approach and it can't be our approach either. Look at the very start of this, that God is calling his people to live in the story that he's telling, and he's calling them to live faithfully in it. Verse 1 here says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He's saying, live in this story, and live in a way that's appropriate to it. The basis for God giving his law to his people is everything that's come previously in the book of Exodus. So, refresher here. God remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He sees his people are trapped in slavery. He has all these plagues on the Egyptians to free the people from slavery. He brings them out into the desert. He takes them to the Red Sea. He parts the sea. They walk through it like it's dry land. The Egyptian army comes through and he crushes them in the sea. And then he leads them further into the desert and feeds them with bread from heaven. And gives them water in a place where there's no water. In every way that's tangible, God has done everything necessary to buy his people back from all the effects of sin. And when he brings them out into this desert, he gives them the law to show them how to live as his redeemed people. And he gives them the ceremonial law, which is like, uh, you know, this is how much you need to wash and clean yourself. We don't do that anymore because Jesus fulfills it. He gives them the civic law, like this is how you take care of the poor. We don't have to worry about that anymore because, you know, we're not in like... A physical kingdom. God's kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. But the moral law that he gives, that was present at the foundation of the world. And so he's giving that to them and to us and saying, this is the way to live. All people are called to live according to this law, especially Christians. Which you don't assume everybody here is, but everyone is called to live according to this thing. And especially if you're in relationship with God, that this is the way to live. Because being in a relationship with God is not this private thing. It's for the whole of your life. I mean, look here. It says, this is how you treat your parents. This is your relationship with work and rest. There's Sabbath. There's the deep desires of your heart and how you feel about, how, about what your neighbor has because of those desires. And that can really rub us the wrong way sometimes, especially when God's commands cut against our will. But the Bible's understanding is that God has built us and so he knows our purpose and how we're supposed to work. That the law provides this moral ceiling for us to reach to, and it provides this moral floor that we're not supposed to fall into or fall below. It shows us how to live. And when we say things like, you know, I can be a pretty moral person by ignoring the first few commandments of like having no other gods, or like, you know, I don't make carved images or idols. Like, I don't, that's not my struggle personally. We miss out on something important here. Because the first commandments are the basis for the last commandments. Like, think about it like this. The law says don't lie, right? But if you lie about yourself for an important job interview so you can get a better job and make more money, then money is this more important thing to you than telling the truth. It's this thing that you're worshiping. 
It's this thing that's guiding you through life and telling you how to live. And so you've broken the first commandment there because you've broken this thing of idolatry in your life. Or maybe you hurt somebody because they smear your reputation. You've made an idol of your reputation. You only break the last commandments because you break the first commandments. And you can only keep the last commandments if you keep the first commandments. Look, the law of God is not God grounding us. Because behind every no that the law says, there is this yes that God is giving to your flourishing. And to all human flourishing. Look, when, what if we read the commandments in the positive here instead of the negative? Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Read positively become protect life, be faithful in marriage, be content with what you have. Like if you grasp the yes, then each no begins to make sense as this invitation to live according to the way that God made you to live. That what we're supposed to do with the commandments in this positive way is to see God's commitment to the way that we're supposed to live in the world, the way that would actually lead to your flourishing. Look, this is the, we're all supposed to live in a certain way. And God has given us these commandments for a good purpose in your life. So if that's the good of the law, what we're supposed to do with it, what's the no of the law? What's the wrong way to do it? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at home on a Saturday, and Katie was just leaving to go to the grocery store. The girls had gone to take their afternoon nap, and it was perfect uh, because I was going to get some alone time, which I need because I'm an introvert. And all of a sudden, as I'm heating up some leftovers to eat a late lunch, the, I hear this knock on the door, and it's this pair of Jehovah's Witnesses, these two sweet Jehovah's Witnesses, which I was actually really excited to see them because uh, I, I really wanted to talk with them about um, their views of Jesus and their views of the atonement, the person work of Christ, like, which are very different and fall outside of the realm of orthodoxy for Christians. And so I invite them in, and they're, trying, they're kind of giving me their spiel. And I'm like, yeah, 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 okay, okay. But tell me about Jesus. And they get pretty excited about that. And then I'm also excited about that. And we start to like have this like, this theology debate, and I'm totally nerding out with this because it's like this validation of all these things that I've read and studied and things that I've thought about, like all come together, and these people actually like know a lot about the Bible, and they want to talk to me about it, and I'm just like making point after point after point, and just really kind of pushing them into kind of a corner, and they're so quick, kind and so sweet. It's this husband and wife couple, and the husband at one point like, I'm really, like, hammering this one thing in John's gospel, and he looks at me, and he's like, you know, like, we could really kind of, like, solve this problem that you've brought up, but, you know, to do that, you'd have to have, like, this interlinear Greek and Hebrew English Bible, but, and he kind of looks at me and, like, shrugs, like, nobody has that, and I'm like, I've got one, <laughs> and I, like, scamper over to my, like, books, literally, like, prancing, <laughs> And blow the dust off of it. Uh, and I open it up and I prove my point to him with the Greek text. And it was, I was just like in theology nerd heaven. And they're like, he's like Googling things on his phone and his wife is talking about stuff and I'm like talking to her about other things. And in this moment, as I'm kind of like on cloud nine with this just intense nerddom, like I kind of have this moment where I could feel the law of God coming up 
next to me and holding up this mirror to my insides and saying, do you love these people? Or do you just love showing off how much you know to these people? And I kind of instantly knew the answer to that. (laughs) And the power of the law here is that it shows you what you need to do. It sets the table for what a human life of flourishing looks like. But the problem with the law is that it cannot give you the power to do the thing it commands. The law's number one command is to love. All the other commandments are this fleshing out of that one primary command to love God with your whole being and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it cannot give you the thing that it commands. It cannot provide it. It can show you what all those things would look like and what you need to do to do those things, but it can't make us do those things or even want to make us do those things. Think about it like this. Suppose you've got this Spanish teacher who's incredibly gifted and they are helping you do all the grammar and all the vocab and walking you through kind of the conversational rigmarole of what and is just like a top-notch Spanish teacher. And they can give you all these things that you need to learn Spanish and show you all the tips, all the tricks, but they can't make you want to learn Spanish or desire to learn Spanish, even though it would be a very helpful thing when you study abroad. Look, think about it like this. The law shows us what we need to do. It teaches us these things, but it can't actually make us want to do them. Look, y'all, you come from the generation that by every metric has the least amount of sex, does the least amount of drugs, drinks the least, which I know is probably surprising to some of y'all after last night, is engaged in some of the least amount of criminal activity. Like, you all are one of the most moral generations in modern society. Yet you're also one of the most troubled generations with the most anxiety and the most depression. Your great-grandparents lived through the Great Depression and World War II, and they were happier than you were by almost every metric. (laughs) Why is that? Now, you can point to several reasons, but I want to suggest to you that it's your approach to morality. That the more that you try to be moral and say to yourself, you know, I see the problem, I'll figure this problem out, I'll work my way through this problem, I'll figure out all the approaches to it, and I'm going to solve it, I must be better. The more you say that to yourself, the more the problem has grown. Because that approach works really, really, really well with your history midterm and your chem exam. It works with all the stuff that's outside of you. It has no power to help you if the problem is on your insides. It has no problem to deal with the stuff inside of you where you know you're supposed to do it, but you don't have the power to do it yourself. That when you approach morality like that, it's kind of like one of those koosh balls, you know, that you used to like throw at one another in the pool, where you like you squeeze it on one side, and you get better over here, and then the sin kind of comes out on the other side, and it really doesn't do anything to change your heart, or your motivations, or your desires. Like you get more moral in one way, and then something else comes along. You can restrain it, but you can't fix it. 
Look, another problem of trying to follow the law and living by your own morality is it's incredibly unfair. It's totally unfair to people who didn't grow up with some of the advantages that we grew up to be moral. It leads to pride, it leads to exclusion, which is why so many religious people come off as proud and exclusive. Like, think about this. Just uh, Theoretically, what if someone in this room came from a good family, where working hard and being moral were always rewarded, and where not working or being mean or being violent were always punished, and where the path for you from life, for life that was set for you from like infancy was be good, work hard, get to a good school, get a good job, have a good life one day. Like Theoretically, what if that was someone here? I'm just going to toss that out. You had been shaped in all these ways to be a moral person. But what if you hadn't been shaped in those ways? Think about how exclusive that would be. Like, what if you were from, like, the inner city of Chicago where being moral or being kind was always seen as weakness and where no one in, like, two or three generations in your family has been able to hold down a job or where working hard in school was frowned upon but joining a gang and being really violent in that gang was rewarded by everybody that was around you? Like, that person would have morally every disadvantage thrown at them. Like, what do you do with that? What could the moralist from the good family say to the kid who grew up in inner city Chicago? Like, it would be right to say you should not murder people or sell drugs. But how do you help that person change? How do you help that person become new? Like, if moralism and following the law is the way to approach God and others, that means that some people are just going to be excluded because they grew up in really immoral conditions. But the purpose of the law is not just to show us what we're supposed to do. It's to hold up this mirror to us and show us what we're actually like. That, in fact, all of us are, for whatever moral advantages we have, deeply immoral. And this is all of us. I mean, think about the Ten Commandments here. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, always 100% from your heart of hearts, honor and worship God all the time. No breaks. Uh, Okay, well, let's just lay that one aside. Uh, Never, ever tell a lie for any reason. Even if it's a white lie that feels harmless and doesn't seem like it hurts anybody. Never tell a lie. Okay, okay, that's too hard. Uh, Never look across at your neighbor and desire the things that they have that are dear to them because you don't have them. Don't covet. Oh, I don't know if I can do that. Right? Like the law shows us God's standard of righteousness and as it does so, it shows us how unrighteous we are. That there is just a part of you and me that loves to do bad because it's bad. There's just a part of us that loves that. Look, part of what some of us love about Halloween and the parties and the wildness of that night is the chance to throw off some of the constraints that normally bind us and to dress up and be someone else. And for everyone to look at that and kind of shrug their shoulders and say, it's Halloween. And it's not that those desires aren't there the other 364 days. It's that this is the night when everyone just says, do what you want to do. 
And we love it because there's a part of us that just wants to do that. This is why porn has such a big draw for some of us, both men and women. Because here's this place in your life where you can routinely go and you can tap into the perversion and depravity of your own heart and see other people doing really depraved, really perverse things and be affirmed in that. And we love it. Because there's a part of us that just likes to be bad. And the law's job is to hold that mirror up to us and say, look, this is you. It's like you're in a pit and you can't get out. In fact, I want you to try. I want you to shoot for being a very moral person because the more you do, the more you'll realize that you can't do it. Why is that? Because the law isn't just this ceiling and it's not just this floor, it's this mirror that shows us our need of grace. Get out of the pit. Come on, get out of the pit. I can't get out of the pit. I'm trying. Try harder. I'm trying harder. I can't do it. Good. Like you realize your need of grace in that. Christianity, look, Christianity levels the playing field with morality because it says all of us are immoral, but God is just and gracious. And when God came, one of the very first things he said was that, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That he comes to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That you are in this deep pit, and I'm going to come down there, and I'm going to get you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Jesus fulfills all the requirements of the law. He always loved God with all of his being and he suffered because of it. And it took him to the cross. He always loved his neighbor as himself and he suffered because of it. And it took him to the cross. He goes all the way to the bottom of the pit to get us out. He pays the penalty of all of our law breaking, which is death. And he gives you and I, when we believe, the reward for all of his law keeping, which is life. Look, God is the true judge. He's the true judge. But He doesn't exist for us. We exist for Him. We walk on His earth. We breathe His air in order to give Him glory. Which, if we were to do, would be the true joy of our hearts and the true fulfillment of who we are. But strangely enough, that is not our default mode. But God looks at us and says, I love you. And I'm still going to be holy, holy, holy. But I want to live in your midst. I love you. It is God's beauty and His glory that He hates our sin. It is His mercy and His love that He loves us sinners. And we can sit here and think, you know, if my community group knew what I was really like on the inside and who I was and what I was like, they would cut me off. I hope that wouldn't be the case, but we can think that. Christians have done that kind of stuff. But when you trust in Jesus, God does not cut you off. He does not judge you, not because there isn't something to judge, because there is. He doesn't judge you because He set apart a man for you who is judged on your behalf. And what can make us afraid to deal with the law is that it holds up a mirror to us and honestly calls for self-reflection. That there's a standard up here, and if I don't meet this standard, then what happens? I can't rely on myself, and that's bad news. 
But if Jesus is who he says that he is, then this is the best bad news ever. Because when people who knew Jesus, lived with Jesus, loved Jesus, watched Jesus live and die and fulfill the law and then die on a cross, it was like this catastrophe. They had no idea what to do with that. And then he rises from the dead and they understand that this is the best thing that could have happened. That God makes lawbreakers right with himself. People like you and I who break the law and hurt one another and hurt God, he makes us right with himself. Do you know what Jesus' death on the cross is? It's a good catastrophe. It's good bad news for you and for me. It's a good catastrophe because God dies. And it's wonderful because he dies for sinners. So I want to end with this. Um, Last March, RUF went to Charleston for spring break, which was super fun. We were working with this organization called Jobs for Life. Uh, And one of the things we were doing was we were uh, working all day at Jobs for Life and then we'd come back to our hotel and some of us at night would go to this movie theater that was like one or two minutes away. And it was awesome because there were some great movies playing. And one of the movies that we watched was Get Out, which I don't know if you've seen it or not. Super good, a must-watch movie, which I'm about to spoil for you. Yeah. (laughs) It's worth watching anyway. (laughs) But we're in this movie theater in Charleston, and it's predominantly a movie theater full of like African-American people in Charleston watching this African-American horror movie about this guy named Chris who is going uh, with his girlfriend, who's white, to go meet her parents for the first time out in the country. And because it's kind of an African-American horror movie made by Jordan Peele from Comedy Central, it, uh, things go bad, right? <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler for you. Uh, <laughs> And her parents are completely insane, they're horrible, and he winds up having to fight for his life to get out of the house, and he, he winds up at the end, the house is on fire, everything is in chaos, it's all like gone sharply downhill for this meet the parents kind of thing. And he's beaten, and he's bloodied, and he's bruised, and this cop car comes down the road, <laughs> no. <laughs> and sirens blaring, lights flashing, and everyone in the theater, like you can just feel the air get sucked out of the room. Like, ugh. Because you've been rooting for this guy this whole movie, and it's like in this movie theater full of predominantly African American people in 2016 in Charleston, they know what the story is when a black guy sees a cop car come up. And there's been all this chaos and all this violence. Like, they know what that story is. And there's this moment where he looks at the car and he's like, no. And you're like, no. And everyone in the theater is just like, no. (laughs) It's horrible. And then out of the cop car steps his best friend, Rodney. (laughs) Who's this amazing guy? And he says, Chris, get in the car. We're getting out of here. I very much edited that. Uh, (laughs) 
get in the car, we're getting out of here. And the mood in that theater, just the air rushes back in and people are laughing and clapping and everyone is like almost like high-fiving the people next to them (laughs) because it has just been the worst thing ever when this cop car rolls up. And yet it saves the hero. It's the best thing ever. And what I want to say for us is that to look into the law will feel like both the worst thing ever and the best thing ever. It is the worst thing ever because it shows you the reality of your sin. And it's the best thing ever because it shows you the reality of a God who loves sinners and dies for them and makes them new. And that is our offer to you in RUF. Like whether that is the millionth time or whether that is the first time that you would turn to God and say, accept me, forgive me, have mercy on me, not because of who I am, because of who you are. And that's our offer to you, as always. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you love us and you sent your son to die for us. That he would do for us all the things that we can't do for ourselves in the law. That he would make us new, that he would love you, that he would love his neighbor, that he would give us everything that he's earned from that. So it's not like we just go to zero, but we go to everything that Jesus has. Help us to turn to him, to trust him, to live out of his grace, and to follow his law because it's a delight and it's good, and we're free from having to earn anything before you. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, this is a new song we're doing. Um, and it's back with a lot of drinks, so listen to the words.